Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Alexa Gagas, in for Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. He's a folk rock singer, songwriter, and Brown University senior. And now, Chance Emerson can add tech startup founder to his resume, where he's helping independent musicians like himself communicate with their fans. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here in the studio with Chance Emerson, a local folk rock singer and songwriter. Great to have you here today, Chance. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Before we dive into everything that you're doing right now, how did you even get into music? I grew up in a very musical family. My dad, he went to opera school briefly and decided he wasn't good at opera, but he's always been like a, a huge singer and like advocate for music everywhere that, you know, we can have it. And so at home, when we were sitting down for dinner, there would always be songs playing. Even though I was growing up in Hong Kong and Taiwan, I grew up listening to like Nora Jones and Oasis and the Beatles and James Blunt. And my dad would just always be singing. And so I think that rubbed off on me a little bit. On my on my mom, she really wanted me to learn piano and violin. When I was 10, I actually, I asked to quit music for my birthday. That was what I asked for as like a birthday gift. I was like, I hate this. I don't want to do this. It's like the worst use of my time. And my dad was like, okay, you can't quit, but you can switch instruments. And I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. <laughs> and I was like, drums. And they were like, not that one. And then I chose guitar. I got a guitar, a little black electric guitar with, like, white lining. It was like a heavy metal guitar. And I thought I was going to play, like, hardcore rock. I was listening to a lot of Deep Purple at the time, <laughs> actually. And, yeah, I picked it up, fell in love with the instrument, realized maybe I wasn't going to make Deep Purple music. And I guess that's sort of how I fell into loving music was when I first found, like, the instrument that spoke to me. Do you still listen to Deep Purple, though? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Good, I good. do a lot of driving, just, like, with tour and, and whatnot. And the best driving song is still Highway Star. That's awesome. And you're balancing college. Mm -hmm. You're also a tech startup founder, which we're going to talk about later on. But how are you juggling your work as a singer, as a songwriter, and going to school full time? It's a good question that I'm still working on. I'm still trying to figure out how to juggle all of it, even in my last semester. I think it helps that everything I do, I really like that I'm doing. 
Um, like I would not be doing these three things and like stretching myself so thin if I wasn't so passionate about all three. I mean, didn't you take the first few weeks off of school this semester um, just to go on tour? I mean, just to finish up? So I didn't take the first few weeks off. I was still <laughs> full-time in school, which was nuts. I was just doing a lot of work from random motel and hotel rooms across the country. And so what I was doing was I was just listening to lectures in my like AirPods. I was like, it's like a podcast. It was like listening to podcasts while driving, except the podcasts were very hardcore and not like fun. To, they weren't like, they were not conversational. They were very lecture heavy. Right. But last fall, we were on the road with this band, Blues Traveler. All of my bandmates were still in school with me. We were all STEM majors. I'm like one of the last ones remaining. Everyone else graduated. We were literally on the road, you know, with this wild rock band. And one of my favorite memories is we were playing College Street Music Hall in New Haven. Our set finished. But two of us had like a deadline the following day for like a computer, like a computer science submission, essentially. And so I feel like normally you finish a set. And this was like one of our biggest shows ever. It was like, I think, 1,200 or so. And you would think we'd like go and like celebrate or have a beer or something. We all went backstage and we just started working on our like problem set or whatever the submission was. And I remember just being like, this is this is weird. This is not normal, but it's fun. It's great. You know, one of your most popular songs is House We Share. Yeah. That, that you played for Ocean State Sessions. So we're going to give that a listen right now. Three stacks of wood in the cabinet. So if you want a fire, we have it. Honey, this hearth is ours, and I think we're going to build something. Set the table with a three-course menu Cause I learned to cook to impress you The oven's warm Stance by the fire, I mean it So hand in hand I wonder where we'll go Arms in the air We're twirling through our kitchen I run my fingers through your hair And I don't care money or the complications I live for this house we share mm-hmm. I think it's a very pure song it's like super honest it was about like the first time I'd ever been like super super in love and the first time I ever moved in with anyone and it just made it so easy for me I was like I have this thing that I want to say and I just like it just spilled out of me and I was like this is so cool and we recorded it and I'm just so grateful for the reception it's had. Right. I mean, even on Spotify, it has like 1.6 million listens. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. I'm like, I know four people, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever expect something like that to come out of that song or any of your others? I mean, you have other songs that have had over a million and a half listens just on that particular song on Spotify alone, let alone every other streaming platform. It's strange because... I feel like I've always had like a gut feeling about which songs will do well. And I had like a really strong feeling about House We Share in particular. I don't know. I just had this gut feeling that I was like, this is like a really cool song. And like, this is something people will resonate with. And like, I would listen to this. I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you just came out with another new album this spring, right? Yeah. So that's the one with House We Share. Mm -hmm. The the record's called Ginkgo. It's the only like professional or semi-professional project I've ever really done. Because the first EP was just me and a friend in, like, literally a closet. You know, very disconnected from, like, the music industry or you really really knowing what's going on. I kind of put it out just to be like, ah, well, I made this thing and I want to, I want it to be there. And then that EP called The Indigo Tapes did 
like pretty well. And I like was com- it was not expecting it. Like the, the joke I always say is like, there's five people in my family, and I thought three people were going to listen. <laughs> I was so pleasantly shocked that people wanted to hear what I had to write and what I had to sing and what I had to say. And then with the next album, I was like, okay, what if I like learned how to produce music? And so the next record was called The Raspberry Man. And that was the first time I'd ever produced anything entirely by myself. And I wrote all these songs, but I was still kind of doing it. At least I felt like from like an outsider perspective, I still didn't really understand like what the music industry looked like. I felt very isolated from whatever was happening in like Nashville or LA. Or the music, I feel like hot spots. I was like, oh, I'm just like a kid from Hong Kong. Like I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to put it out there. And then this last project, I feel like has been the first time where I'm like, okay, I'm an actual musician. Like I'm playing shows, I'm touring. I feel like I understand how like the actual industry works and I'm involved in it. And so it felt much more like a professional record. Downtown Providence used to be quite a mecca for musicians. Yeah. And bars and venues like Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel had acts like the Foo Fighters and Green Day. But those kinds of venues have largely closed. So what is it really like to be an independent musician in Providence right now? And is there any infrastructure for the industry at this point? Yeah, honestly, I I don't know if I would have gotten as far with my music had I been in any city other than Providence. Like, I have so much respect and gratitude for the music scene here. I don't know. I just feel like venues and, like, people kind of in, like, the general music scene here in Providence – Whereas in other cities, people in those roles might be very, like, gatekeepy and be like, oh, I don't know you or whatever. Like, in Providence, they're like, oh, cool, you do this? Okay, come on. Like, show me what you got and, like, come and play a show. And, like, I want to meet you and I want to meet you and I want to meet you. And everyone's just been so welcoming. Like, um, actually, the first proper ticketed show or second proper ticketed show I ever played in my life was here at the Met. You know, like, the, actually, the Met is owned by, like, Rich Lupo, who was Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel. And so I really loved starting my music career here. I think that it would have been totally reasonable for, you know, generally like a city to be like, oh, there's this like international kid coming from Taiwan, playing Americana music, trying to come to Providence or to come to our city and play music. Like what? I'm not down. And everyone was so welcoming. You know, gone are the days of burning a track on a CD or a tape and handing them out along Sunset Boulevard. We would think that social media and streaming would help independent artists get their name out there more, but do you think it's actually doing more harm than good? I think that's a really hard question, um, and it's something I have a lot of conversations about. I think I think the main change that streaming has brought about is that like the barriers to entry have gone to nothing, which is simultaneously a great thing and a difficult thing. When I think about it in terms of my own music and like myself, I have a hard time believing that if I were trying to do this kind of music in the 70s, like that a label would have decided to like take a chance on me and, you know, been like, all right, let's let's put some money into like letting this kid cut his first record. Like I struggle to believe that that would have happened. And so I think it allows for kind of like more unexpected artists to just literally prove that they have a fan base by releasing their own music and like building it themselves. And so I think it removes a lot of the inaccessibility of the music industry. At the same time, it's hard because obviously with streaming, artists are making much less for their music. Like the music itself is hard to monetize. And then there's the added kind of factor that streaming has kind of changed how people discover music. Like you discover more artists than ever on streaming. And it especially benefits, I think, smaller up and coming artists. Like, you know, these semi-algorithmic playlists like Discover Weekly is like the prime example I feel like on Spotify. 
that really helped with my first record. Like I got some traction and it pushed it out to more people. That really helped me. But it's just, it's it's hard to say because that that aspect of discovering an artist used to happen in concerts. But now that concerts are kind of like a, a key source of like musical income, those prices have gone up and they're no longer a source of artist discovery. So it's, it's very complicated and super nuanced and I could ramble about it for like three hours, I feel like. How much time are you spending on social media or any other platform for that matter just trying to market yourself too to not only get listeners to discover you, whether it's you know through Spotify or through social media or what have you, but then also to keep them engaged? Yeah, it's a tricky thing to balance. I think there have been points in my career where I've been like doing more marketing than I have been actually like creating. Those are the points where I'm like, oh, what am I doing? And I really question myself and like the validity of how I'm spending my time. I think I've settled into like a better rhythm now where I'm just trying to be like as authentic as I can be on platforms like this and share kind of things that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Like I, I wake up and most days I'll write for like 45 minutes when I wake up. There's something I think about not being as self-critical like really early in the morning because you've just been like dreaming and you're like, oh yeah, that that sounds fine. That That's not a rhyme, but it's okay. And so I found that really helpful for my writing. But recently I've been trying to like actually just very quickly at the end of that be like, okay, I've been writing for 45 minutes. Do I have anything cool? If I have something cool, I'll just like literally put my phone up against like my computer, record it, post it, and I'm done. We'll see if that works as well. That's probably, I think, the hardest part of balancing the different aspects of what you need to do as like an independent artist is just figuring out how to like prioritize. Yes, you need to work hard to make sure people listen to the stuff, but you also need to work equally hard on making the stuff. Right, right. And you also recently launched a new platform that specifically helps independent artists like yourself grow their fan base faster. That platform is called Forever Fan. So can you tell us a little bit about it and what it is? Yeah. So what we're trying to build is essentially um, a CRM for artists. And when I say CRM, I mean like a customer resource management system. And so in the same way, that Gap or Levi's, when I go into like a Gap store and buy, you know, a pair of socks or whatever, they're going to track that. And they're going to know that, okay, this customer has bought this pair of socks. And if I go then online and use the same credit card and buy like a shirt, they're like, okay, this customer bought a shirt. And then they start sending me emails or text messages. And if I open like a coupon and use it, they know that, you know, their marketing effort has been successful. That's what we're trying to provide to artists for their fans. So as an artist, I can't tell you how useful and excited I would be to know, you know, who are the 10 people who are listening to my music most often? Who are the 10 people who are most likely to promote my music to other people? Because then I could be like, thank you. Um, honestly, because it's those super fans that are like making my career in music possible. Um, and so that's that's really what we're trying to do at Forever Fan. It's been really, really fun to build. It's really exciting to build something that you're passionate about. And it's also doubly fun for me because I am my own customer. And so when we build out a new feature, I'm like, okay, that's great. Like the company has a new feature. And I'm like, okay, great. I can use the feature too. How much does it cost to be on the platform? It depends. We have two tiers right now. Um, it's like a monthly subscription fee. And we're going to figure out kind of what makes sense as we start building more and more and more. But right now it's $15 a month for kind of the standard plan. It's interesting because the company has shifted so much since it was started. It's been around for like a year and a half now, but when it was, I guess like if you really want to go to like the proto stages of what Forever Fan was, it was not this past album, but the album prior to that. I put out three singles and then the record. 
Um, and I was doing these things called pre-save campaigns, which are just like digital pre-orders essentially for a track to help push like the algorithmic playlists on like digital streaming platforms. And I was very frustrated because you would do like a pre-save for one release at a time. And that was annoying to me because I was like, I'm putting out three singles and a record. Why wouldn't I just have a digital pre-order for the record that also saved, you know, the initial three singles? And so we built that, just me and my friend Jacob Axel, um, just created that just for me to use. And then a bunch of kind of my fellow musicians were like, how did you do that? And can we use it? And I was like, sure, of course, friends, like, please, we already built it. Why not? But then friends of friends started reaching out. And I was like, okay, like, there's actually, like, people want to use this and there's, like, a demand for it. Why don't we, like, turn this into something that people who don't know me through a friend of a friend of a friend can also use. And so that's sort of how Forever Fan started. Outside of Forever Fan, what else are you working on right now? I am working on my next musical project, and I'm working on graduating. <laughs> when are you graduating? I graduate in December, so I have two months to go. Congratulations. I'm, I'm close, assuming that the exam I just had went well. When's your next uh, Rhode Island-based gig so our listeners can know where to see you next? Uh, November 3rd. I'm playing at AS220 in downtown Providence. I'm really excited. I actually haven't played there before, ever. I think it's going to be perfect because it's like a November run. And it's like kind of the end of fall. It's very coffee house style, this this set of shows. It'll be the first time I've really done like a closer to headline tour where I'm I'm like leaning heavily into the acoustic sound and showing songs kind of as they were written as opposed to like as they were produced out with like a full band. I think it's going to be cozy as opposed to raucous. Good luck with the show. Thank you. And Chance, great chatting with you today. It was so fun. I toss and turn at 7.30 I had the same damn dream again Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Alexa Gagas. Ed will be back next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.